Welcome back to Core Ideas, the podcast interested in all things related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. My name is Adam Jesiorski, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steenbone. What's up, buddy? Not too much. Uh, we're going to wrap up a arc today. We are. Uh, arc number seven? I believe it's seven. I don't yeah, have I a number so. in front of me. But Doesn't can- matter. An arc, and one that's been going for a little while. We yep. A little while in terms of episodes, but also... In terms of the number of months that we've been working on it, and I think it's been a good one, uh, and I think this is a good topic to finish on. It's one of the ideas of episode topics for the show more broadly that, that's been kicking around for a little while, uh, and, and so hopefully it's one to end the arc and these sort of conceptual rabbit holes on. Yeah, and so ideas that at first blush seem quite simple, but when you pick away at them, you realize that there's a lot more complexity. And today we're going to be talking about models, and we've spoken before about the power of models. Don't turn it off. Don't turn it off. (laughs) Listener. (laughs) Don't worry. Don't worry. Hang on a second. Uh, Models are awesome. Stick with us for a a second. Um, Yeah, we're going to be talking obliquely, abstractly about models. Um, You know, we're not not going to be uh, explaining transfer functions in audio form today. Um, we already did that perfectly, yeah. but, um, but yes, talking about the power of models with respect to dating calibration sets and transfer functions or things we've done in the past, uh, today's topic is, uh, a little zooming out a little bit, um, talking about the building of those models and specifically at what point is a model good enough or how much data is too much data? I mean, how much data are too much data? No, I think I meant when I said, basically, when do lots of datums become too many datums? Oh, okay. That's very clear. Good. Okay. No, I think that's a really interesting topic and, and not one that you, ex- well, often uh, explicitly think about as you are starting to build these models. And it's a really important topic to think about probably early on as you start to plan for these kind of analyses. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah, and I think in many, I think in many, you know, paleolimnological analyses where there's a model involved in building a model, you're going to encounter this question whether you want to or not, mm-hmm. um, because it'll be a case of when are you done, and do you keep going? You know, like something derailed it and you didn't get the samples you thought. Did you get enough, or do you, you know, or you finish ahead of schedule and you keep building? But anyway. Um, the idea that kind of kicked this all off, we're just thinking a little bit about how the idea of a universal bottle always seems quite interesting, I think, when you're first introduced to the idea of transfer functions and models. So, for example, why not build a diatom calibration set that combines all existing diatom analyses into a single model for the entire planet? You know, um, and just, yeah. you know, you don't have to worry about anything ever again, just reconstruct tp for every lake ever if you had this magical universal model but it doesn't exist no it doesn't exist it's it's not only does like i why would you try it like there's uh it seems like it would be a really useful thing that it's a little surprising that it doesn't until you start to think about the challenges associated with doing that 
and uh, and really, would that get at what you're trying to do with it? Would that do what you're trying to do? And probably not, because the idea of why you want the middle and model in the first place is it needs to be useful and has to have some sort of predictive power. So you really want to build it so to maximize that predictive power. So you only want to be using input lakes that are similar to your output lakes in mm-hmm. terms of so if you threw all arctic tropical temperate big small lakes all into one big massive pool the predictive power for that on any one of those particular lakes would be probably quite low because the amount of variability and the amount of gradients involved are all colossal that's right if you have no saline systems that you're interested in modeling incorporating the taxa if we're thinking of a, a bio uh, physical response kind of model the tax I found in those sites is is just not going to be increasing your ability to say something about the site you're interested in. Exactly. And if the model is doesn't have good predictive power, even if you built the biggest model in the universe, and it, if it's not useful, it won't be used. And so then the question becomes, at what point is the model good enough? And then one thing I think is important to contrast here is data-rich single stories from models I think one came out because then you run into issues of um, maybe in some cases you're not necessarily modeling, but you're talking about like paleoliminological ones where there are lots of samples and you're reconstructing a history and you're doing lots and lots of slices for a specific reason. And the extreme one I think we've talked about before in terms of sheer numbers would be the the tape peel analyses that were early in in the... um, um, acid rain studies where I think it was Lake Loviarvi in southern Finland. They did a, oh my, what was it? 400-ish years and through the tape peel pulled off a freeze core, developed a temporal resolution approximately equal to bi-weekly sampling <laughs> throughout the entire 418-year period. That's insane. And that is a huge amount of data. And they wanted that massive temporal resolution to, yeah. to tell that particular story. Yeah. And, and and they're not just looking at a single value. That's community data for the entire diatom or whatever other species. Obviously, we, we think about diatoms here. Assemblage at biweekly resolution for 400 years in in this one lake yeah uh, paleo data are often very uh very data rich a- and we're not talking about model approaches or any of those things Be- just based on the sheer nature of species data and the speciose nature of some ecosystems there's an incredible amount of data uh, and it really is i think an important starting point to contrast that with when you are trying to build models based on a number of different locations uh, that you're studying. But it is really important. And that I, I can't think of a better example than that. Yeah. And so just for anyone trying to look it up, uh, we'll include in the show notes, but we referred to this before. It is a paper by Heike Samola from 1990. Um, again, looking at uh, the stratigraphy of uh, tape, tape peel core in Southern Finland. And yeah, I can't think of any more data intensive, but that again had a specific purpose, which is a little bit different than building a model. If you wanted to get a model with probably, so 
418 biweekly samples. I don't know how 25 many. 25 a year times 400, 8,000 samples, 8,500. Yeah. Between 8 and 10,000 samples, something in that range. Yeah. And uh, if you're using multiple lakes again, something like 10,000 data points, you're probably going to be combining doing combining multiple other analyses and it just doesn't really happen at mm -hmm. that scale with diatom models because there'd be a huge amount of data harmonization involved because different people call different things from different lakes may not id them to the same level the same way between an analysts if you pull in older studies the, the actual taxonomy may have changed mm -hmm. causing other data Almost harmonization problems. Yep. like I, I don't know and i imagine doing ten thousand. Samples from a single lake would be a little bit easier than doing a 10,000 disparate lake because just the taxonomic diversity would be so much less. Tens of thousands of times easier, for sure. I mean, eventually you have exhausted like 10,000. You can't have 10,000 different diatoms. <laughs> like you've, There's not that much diversity in a given geographic location, but absolutely, it's always going to be easier to count one lake multiple multiple samples because there's going to be so much overlap definitely well and so although it's not possible in community data or well, i guess not probable probably yeah. it is you know where there's a will there's a way i yep, suppose for sure with uh, enough analysts certainly um less common though yeah but it, it becomes more of a possibility when you're talking about instrumental data sets where there's a set number of techniques to measure something um and I think, you know, the immediate things that come to mind would be at the Pearl Lab, things like the uh, DOC model based on um, uh, spectral yeah, reflectance. Yeah, VRS, um, visible reflectance spectroscopy analyses, where there's less of a individual analyst effect because it's more a case of collecting the sediments and running them through the same machine to get the same numbers. I'm sure there are many other instrumental examples that you could think of where you could feasibly combine every single sample that has ever been collected through some sort of yeah. focal lab. Yeah, and I think that's a good example because it's that's a very data rich product too. Like it's easy relative, I mean, using air quotes here, easy to collect the data because it's standardized based on an instrumental method. But the uh, data that come out of it are incredibly robust in the same way as a diatom community assemblage. The spectral data have, have many hundreds of points depending on the, the range of the spectrum that you're looking at. So you get a very kind of similar output product but that doesn't require a single analyst to identify those uh, those individual species. So you get a, a very data robust product to incorporate into these kind of large models that can then be done at, at probably a much broader scale. And yeah, and the key thing is that it's much easier to calibrate a spectrometer than it is to calibrate a diatom analysis. Yes, big time. Analyst, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you take it well. Harmonizing uh, any species taxonomy uh, is, is challenging. Oh, absolutely. And and diatoms are, are among the more speciose groups, so the the differences are often going to be a little bit subtler in in some ways. It's just more species. That's not a trivial part of any type of combined analysis. So yeah, the ability to incorporate that in a, a more um, repeatable kind of uh, calibration way is 
definitely going to feed into the potential to build much larger models. And, um, but again, as we mentioned earlier, does that make a lot of sense? Like how much noise do you create when you combine all the various ecozone types, big, small, saline, oligotrophic, eutrophic, all together? Um, because how much noise gets incorporated when the gradients are included that you're not interested in? So if you're only interested in, in small headwater oligotrophic lakes, the Putting Lake Superior in there, eh, maybe doesn't make no, that much sense. It, it will just make the model worse. Like, there's no feasible way in which it would make the model better because it's just going to be so different from any of the models that you're trying, uh, any of the lakes that you're trying to apply the model to to reconstruct whatever the variable of interest might be. Yeah, exactly. They're fundamentally different ecosystems where the processes are potentially being driven by different controlling factors. It's not that DOC doesn't work the same in this lake, or it's not the same molecule in this lake, series of molecules in this lake versus this lake. It's that what is controlling the processes in the system, but also in the catchment, because a lot of times we're interested in what's going on around the system are fundamentally different. And so what you're trying to reconstruct or infer uh, based on your model is not the same because of the nature of the system itself. And this sometimes, yeah, it gets lost because when you're looking through mountains of data, it's pretty easy to go diatom data is diatom data. But if you're trying to reconstruct animal habitat, you wouldn't use all ecozones in the world. And there might be a measure of something like, you know, the amount of sunlight, the length of the day or something like that, but or whatever. But just because you have that data for the Serengeti doesn't mean it's going to be useful in your prediction of polar bear habitat. Yeah, exactly. Diatoms are, a, are, depending on the level you're considering, a class at the lowest level of, uh, of, taxonomic, of the taxonomic hierarchy. That's the same as all angiosperms in the plant like kingdom, you know? talking about all flowering plants why would you expect that they would all be responding in the same way to even the same driver let alone a suite of different drivers it doesn't even make fundamental sense to try and combine data in that manner uh, so just because you can doesn't mean that it you necessarily should. yeah exactly it makes sense yeah and and that sometimes gets lost a little bit early on in the in the thinking process, and then you start delving deeper into it, and realize that smaller chunks, uh, sorry, smaller chunks of data are much easier to deal with, and more likely to give the answers that you're interested in. So it's like a win-win to like focus in on what is useful. Yeah, and ultimately that's the goal. But despite the focus on or the usefulness of smaller models that's not to say that larger models don't exist at a like continental scale where gradients of interest are maximized there's definitely examples of this uh, a couple that come to mind are the national lakes assessment uh, conducted by the epa in the united states there's the ncirc um, lake pulse project um, but these are huge collaborative efforts with a unified protocol that goes well beyond the scope of any one individual analyst and considerable time and effort goes into the development of these protocols as the projects are have multiple principal investigators take many years and include many many students. Yeah, how many how many lakes are were in Lake Pulse approximately in the ballpark? Any idea? It's in 
Adam sampled some of these. You should yeah, know. Yeah, oh, I'm blanking on it. It's like, it was in the hundreds? Order of 700. Thousands? Oh, it was hundreds. It was hundreds. Definitely hundreds. It wasn't and, a thousand. It was like 700, and, 600. And I, I was there for one day that I just walked up while they were sampling the lake near our house. And the number of protocols slash anal, uh, analytes, or depending on how you talk about it, was quite a lot. Like, it took a long time to do the sampling. So, how many different things would you do at a lake? Well, that, well, that was really because that was the whole protocol was designed of what is the maximum amount of data you could get from a team of four out of one lake in one day. Right. So it's uh, like a dozen things at least. Yeah. Bring, and then you're bringing home like a sediment core with all of the the analysis yeah. that can be done on and that. And water samples and zooplankton samples and al- algae samples and then we set up a table to do a bunch of like um geomat geo genomic stuff right uh yeah we collected sediment for that but i was thinking more in terms of doing some of the water chemistry stuff on site so that it could be shipped back so like a dozen things easily uh, even if you then take the like bio indicators that were done including by you for a number of them and others we know in the, the sort of paleo group probably talking about more than 20 20 different indicators and if you like combined water chemistry as an indicator for seven eight hundred lakes that's an enormous amount of data and the the nla data set is massive in comparison even yeah i think it's like talking triple or quadruple yeah. in size so that, that is well outside of the scope of what any like research collaborative uh could do unless it's funded in the same way with the huge amount of resources that go into that. So we're, we're not really talking about that kind of um, uh, protocol. Because even in, within those data sets, they're going to have the opposite problem in terms of subsetting down mm-hmm. to get to the answers that they're going to ask. Because the starting point there is like, no, we cannot combine necessarily the um, mountain lakes from BC with... Yeah the um uh urban lakes uh, you know in and around sure, the gta the, there's the gonna be two different lakes so there's gonna be a lot of compartmentalization really really saline system so they may have answered the question that that might be too much data to to look at on that kind of scale and, uh, and so we've done it a little bit and then and it's a case of wrestling with where you know identifying outliers becomes a very big um big part of those analyses sure i, I imagine like clustering samples and, and trying to think about how they fit in with one another is is a really important first step to even deciding how to publish those kind of data or how to parse out um, future analysis and, and really to really learn anything from the data set yeah but um but yeah so we're talking about it more coming from the other side of building up a study an individual graduate study or um something like that where you're starting with Okay, we're building on, building on, but how big does it have to be before it becomes meaningful as opposed to carving out something out of a huge data set that does all follow the same protocol? And again, <clears throat> this can always be, you know, you've got a limited amount of time to do your master's or PhD. Um, and the decision of just simply adding more lakes to your model becomes what is the best allocation of your effort? Because at what point is good enough good enough? And that, you know, that time, like doubling the size of your accounts, would you be better off making a different model or doing some, you know, doing some down core work or something like that um, to find out something new 
rather than just adding more potential noise to, to your to the model that you're starting with. Yeah, that's really important to think about because you could you can keep collecting data, not forever, but for a long time, well past the point where you're uh, contributing contributing any further value to the uh, interpretation that's going to come out of it, uh, and you could put those resources to other uses uh, that that may help you. Maybe another chapter, you know, if you're thinking about the publishing, uh, another paper component. Or, uh, or may just be able to tell you more about the ecosystem if you're trying to understand something. As you go become more data rich, so this is going individual cores as opposed to adding things to a model. If we're just even representing or collating oh, the data in a meaningful way, because got a story to tell you about that one. <laughs> I was gonna, I'm leading. I'm like <laughs> segueing. You're, you're into segue, it right giving now. me my segue. Yeah. So like my. So I, I don't know how many cores is too many for a single paper, but I know 16 is too many, uh, which was the main, like the largest chapter of my PhD because I did a master's and so that was supposed to be six cores. And, uh, and that, that seems like a reasonable number for a master's, you know, they were all in the same area, taxonomy, probably not that hard. That was a doable project. Um, but then when I, um, did, uh, the accelerated masters and switched to a PhD, that we, you know, we realized there were more different sites. And so I added 10 more down cores that we collected samples of, and I counted all the diatoms for them and then had all of these 16 stratigraphy profiles to, uh, to look at it and was trying to figure out how even to incorporate 16 stratigraphies in a paper, let alone any analyses to, uh, kind of combine them together, trying to find out which sites are, are just unique ecologically. Uh, and, and you, you know, you do, it, it's not enough for a meta kind of analysis, but too many to just sort of describe the changes. So it was, uh, it was a, a challenging, uh, workflow. Yeah. And then you run into the issues of when you're trying to compress, not compress is the wrong word, but get all that data into an individual figure, you distill that all down into a single figure you're going to be most likely abstracting away to like pca axis scores and then at that point when you have a whole core community changing through time represented by a single line on a graph with 15 other lines you really start to question of like was all that detail counting necessary? That? Yeah, I know exactly, and and I think I learned a little bit from that. If I'm if I'm thinking about it, because then I another chapter we've talked about the the saline intrusion thing a, a few times, thinking about uh, that part of my PhD, and and I did do that. I ended up actually counting only a hundred diatoms uh, a slide, as opposed to like four hundred diatoms for a full long core every interval so a meter and a half almost every half centimeter for the whole thing but we knew at that point that what we were really interested in was is it salty is it freshwater is it salty is it freshwater so it basically became a, a real summary but we did it beforehand so it was at the counting stage so when it came time to put this data together you know we may not have seen the entirety of the diatom assemblage uh, although I think it was pretty low diversity, so it probably was fine, but it got at the question we were trying to uh, answer. Yeah. And so it's like, 
which is what it all and it's all about really. yeah exactly yeah for sure from from that perspective and, and you can always you know you can always those slides exist you can go back and and do it at a coarser resolution to get a real complete 400 diatom plus count of the entire assemblage and make sure that 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 is representative and um so that's just talking about josh's thesis i've definitely seen a fair number of data heavy studies uh out there there's no no shortage of them and um and there's no knock on them but it's just like oof. when you see some like counts like the um uh, the tape peel one we mentioned before everyone sees like a number like ten thousand slides counted you're like holy moly that's a lot a lot of slides fit in time. a box 50 50 intervals fit in a box is that right depends on how many um 200 boxes of slides <laughs> <laughs> well it depends on how many slides per <laughs> yeah interval. okay so so if it's 50 so you can i think you can fit a hundred slides in a box if you just did one slide per interval yeah that's you still need a hundred boxes <laughs> yeah that's uh <laughs> it's a whole bookshelf for just those ones anyway i get a digression and but there are lots of others so uh one that really jumped to mind is i was thinking about this is just a really data rich uh product is is where people are taking multiple cores from a single lake so not multiple different lakes like i was talking about where 16 was clearly too many but where the goal is to calibrate some sort of variable in lake by looking at a number of sequential sediment cores taken throughout the basin of the lake, whether it's to compare variability in sediment focusing to different basins, or as work has been done uh, out of probably other labs, but comes to mind Pearl, obviously, uh, at Queens here, I can say here because I'm in Kingston right now, uh, is to calibrate uh, changes in water level based on where different zones of the lake come out. Yeah, and so we think of things like um, uh, Melissa Moses' work, who's a PhD student around the time that I started my PhD, doing diatoms along multiple transects of surface sediments up in the experimental lake area, looking at the relationship between modern species distributions and water depth. And this was followed up with by several other students uh, um, in Brian Cummings' lab and looking at, um, I think, Melanie Kingsbury, was dealing with 40 to 90 server samples along transects from eight lakes. So you're looking at like, you know. 500 samples? 500 samples per, but only eight lakes. Um, and that transition zone from the shallow water to the deep water, it's a lot of data to like, and with a lot of noise in it to slice through. And no, I don't know, I was always scared of that kind of, Kind of work. Yeah, it's a it's a different kind of analysis. I I would imagine even more than what we were talking about, different intervals in a single core moving back in time, uh, you would get a lot of overlap. Well, I know there was a lot of overlap in the diatom species. That's the entire point, right? You want to see where those transitions occur. So because you're moving meters sometimes, I think it was like every five meters or something in that range. I think maybe maybe as much as. 10 or 20 meters, but still really close, uh, where the cores are taken in the lake in terms of the, the distance out from the shore. So there's going to be an incredible amount of overlap in the diatom species as you move out, but still just the effort to go, uh, to, to, uh, come up with those data. Yeah. And the volume and decision of like, okay, where for this particular lake is the line is 40, um, uh, surface samples enough or is 90 surface samples enough? Uh, I think those were a, f a function of the, the size of the lake. Like it was just 
at a regularly spaced interval, whatever it was, 5, 10, 20 meters, and, uh, and just as it, many as it took to go from the shallow out to the deepest spot along, along some uh, ledge kind of going out into the basin. And so, yeah, very data-rich analyses with a lot of a lot of um, a lot of challenge uh, challenges associated with them. And uh, in the same vein, but not like going uh, slightly different again, then would be lakes that are record. I think these are some really cool stuff. They are really cool stuff, um, but it becomes a case of again identifying where the noise is and how many is enough and how many samples need to be analyzed and some like key examples one that really jumped out to me semi-recently was a paper that resampled the same lake multiple times or combined multiple cores taken over multiple years to compare chlorophyll a inferences using a couple of different methods and the equivalent barbs through time and that is like a very focused question huge yeah, and that's a site that's been that's been done uh, w- with a number of different analyses. Uh, I can't remember where the lake is located. Is it in Sweden? Uh, it's certainly a European, Northern European yep, example. Northern uh, work by Ingemar Rainberg and and colleagues over many many years, where they have recorded this lake. I think it's a, another uh, varved lake. It is more right. It's Nyland Nyland Okay. Um, Go with that. And it's a, J- a journal paleo. The, the most recent uh, recording the, of it. The Rydberg paper. Yeah, the Rydberg from twenty twenty in the journal of paleolimnology. That's the chlorophyll A when you were that referring is a chlorophyll to. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and that's, but it's the same lake that's been been recorded a number of times. So they have a, a beautiful archive of sediment cores that have been taken uh, at regular intervals over uh, 20, 30, uh, 30, 20 or 30 years, I think, yep. of different intervals. So the sediment core is taken. And then you, you, you know, one of the things about sediment cores, we've talked about this before, is that you, you don't really have a fixed date except for one date the day you took that core. And in these varved lakes, you can then, if you take a core two years later and two years after that and two years after that, you have you know, the two exact amount of material, exactly, that's built up in those two varves in which to infer all of those changes at often very high resolution if, if you choose to uh, very carefully section them, which you can do with varve samples. Uh, so a, a beautiful series of papers that have come out of that, uh, that type of analysis. But again, very data rich. And again, the whole theme of this, bringing up these data rich examples, is trying to identify are there sweet spots? And, you know, going back to the transfer function type model of like space for time um, reconstructions, uh, you know, the question of whether the model is good enough is not a particularly profound one. Everyone building a model will have to ask that of themselves at some point along the line. And there are statistical methods to, to try and do that, to yep. determine you know, how, how good the predictions are. Yep. But, but beyond that. But beyond the actual model performance, um, there have been definite analyses looking at... Um, rules of thumb. Rules of thumb, like in terms of model and field, field season planning, in terms of how, how, much, how big your calibration set needs to be. And there's an interesting paper by Ewan Revy from 2011 in aquatic ecology where they're exploring 
the impact of sample size and diatom-based indicator performance. Uh, in, and then it gets very specific in North, three North American phosphorus training sets. And they, and they came up with an answer is that the sweet spot seems to be, depending on the actual region, 40 to 70 samples is kind of the bar that you're trying to hit. And then that will give you enough of the variation would be captured within those samples of both the assemblages and the environmental conditions in a given geographic range. Um, so that your chances of running into non-analog situations are, are kind of rare. And so that seemed, I remember, remember when that paper came out and, uh, you know, I said, okay, it's kind of a validating paper because there's an element of, I don't know if it had been, um, codified in any way. There's been multiple other analyses doing kind of the same thing, but I remember that was a very reassuring one at the time. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It, it, it just seems like, uh, that that seemed like a number it was yeah one of those things that uh i had never made i've never made a, a training function to this day obviously but when you read them you you do see a lot in that kind of range that 40 to 70 range seems to be sort of the sweet spot for a lot of them uh and whether that was just how many samples you can collect in a given field season you know, i much, think that's a big part of it yeah, how much helicopter time you have if it's uh remote how much driving you're willing to do how much time you're going to spend on the microscope that 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 actually uh uh, corresponded with uh, the good metrics of what a, a really effective model would be. So that that is kind of reassuring uh, in a lot of ways. Now, would that be the same if it was a different environmental variable, if it wasn't the TP models, uh, if it was related to conductivity or uh, acidity or something like that? I don't know. Those analyses I don't think exist. Uh, probably... Uh, you, you might extrapolate that that, that would be uh, acceptable. Um, but until those are done, we, you know, we just have to base it on these kind of interpretations that have been done. And then also adds at the same time, there's also an interesting kind of corollary with in terms of how many samples you need. There's a very related question of how big your counts need to be. And, 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 it's, it all becomes the same thing of like, what is the best use of your effort? So Josh has already mentioned just in the last little while, the difference between counting 100 diatoms versus 400 diatoms for a particular, um, uh, particular analysis. Like if you're looking just in coarse, broad strokes, saline versus freshwater diatoms versus trying to characterize the assemblage. But then there's a whole bunch of papers for a whole bunch of different indicators looking at, you know, is there any benefit to going, okay, Let's ramp that number per slide from 400 diatoms to 500 diatoms to 1,000 diatoms to 10,000. At some point, you're going to have a good enough characterization of the assemblage that just adding extra diatom valves to the count changes nothing. Yeah, for sure. It's just, just effort for no uh, benefit. Yeah. Uh, and where that sweet spot is and uh, and then thinking about... The different indicators because 400 diatoms may be the sweet spot to make sure that you're getting a good overview of the over, overall assemblage and, and not missing anything that's really important. Uh, maybe not a good choice if you're trying to find orobatted mites or something like that. Like you're not going to find 400 mites in a sample or beetle carapaces or, or even clodocera. Well, clodocera maybe. I was thinking more chronomid head capsules. Like you're going to run out of sediment in a lot of cases before you hit 400 in a lot of samples. Um, and the magic 
number to hit is considerably lower. And then, um, then also when you do cladocin analyses, they're compounded by, there's multiple different, the counts compounded because there's multiple remains per individual. Yeah. So then it becomes a case of scaling up from your actual remain count to your minimum number of individuals represented. Yeah. In the same way that the number of lakes when we were talking about with the, the study by you and Revi and, and the general idea, you may not need 70 lakes to get a, a good uh, data set for Cladocera that is representative because there may not be that much diversity in the environment. Uh, so it may totally change in the same way. And coronamids fall in there as well. Same again. A lot of things to think about. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and that's that's really the important part. You, you do need to think about them, preferably before you go and oversample or maybe worse, undersample and, and can't say anything. You know, having too much data is a problem. It can be a concern. You may have wasted some effort, but not having sufficient data to uh, to be able to tell you what it is you want to tell you is going to be a big problem. Yeah, no, I, uh, there's a quote that struck with me a long time ago, basically talking about science very generally, is that it's very easy to find answers, but you're not all, unless you're careful, you're not finding the answer to the question you're asking. And so I think uh, the answer to the question of how much data is too much data is there is no answer and oh, there never is. <laughs> it might always a, depends. That might be a theme of this arc. Okay? It absolutely is. <laughs> it depends. Why, and that's why these questions are interesting because there are no clear, clear answers and it can be compounded again because the best model is not necessarily the most widely used model. Certainly not. There's a definite subset of papers within paleolimnology where a model was built and then for whatever reason was not necessarily adopted into the wider literature. Uh, and part maybe because of inertia, it may be incrementally better than a previously used model, but the previously used model has been cited in a couple of hundred papers at this point and you're gonna to wanna to compare to it more so the one that gives you slightly better predictive power. Yeah, data availability and, and just having access to the models. Could, up until quite recently, it, it would not have been a trivial thing to get physical access to a model that had been created by someone uh, or a research group outside of your own area. So you may just use what you know. And if it is not perfect, but appropriate, then, then that makes sense to just continue. Absolutely. Although, and now we're just diving deeper into the rabbit hole, is that then opens up the question of at what point do you have to start worrying about the aging out of models? I, I think this is a real question. And I, I haven't seen a lot of discussion about that moving currently and moving forward. Because one key thing, and then just to clarify what I'm talking about, is if there's a very widely used model, let's say it was from a paper 20 years ago, and now we look at you know, climate change, uh, you know, where we are markedly longer, um, um, ice-free periods, um, shorter, I don't know if winter short, but like shorter springs, um, that the, mo the conditions of the model that was created 20 years ago may becoming less and less valid over time, yet new analyses are still being 
thrown into that model as the underlying assumptions are changing. And so that becomes a more and more of a concern the longer we get that the models are that were good predictors are becoming less powerful predictors as conditions change. For sure. And I think that's a huge uh, topic to consider within any science, but but paleolimnology, where we're, where we're you know, getting this fairly long record of, uh, of work that's been done and then uh, trying to infer all of the rapid and massive changes that are occurring in some ecosystems. And then you can, on top of that, the, the fact that the taxonomy has changed uh, for many indicators, especially diatoms, if we're thinking about that, since the 90s. Um, uh, that, that it may not actually be more useful now to use those old models, even though they've become so entrenched, uh, and commonly used that, that you may have to kind of go back to those kind of, um, those kind of taxonomic, uh, distinctions that have been used. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting that, uh, we mentioned earlier about the whole recoring of links. And I think this is going to become potentially more and more of a thing, especially for like the marquee models out there. And within the Pearl Lab, several years ago, the, uh, a model um, using diatoms from the Muskoka region to reconstruct total phosphorus was um, conducted by Roland Hall and John Small, papers from 96. And I remember while I was a student, there was a um, another uh, student in the lab, friend of ours, Chris Hadley, who went back and record all those lakes to actually compare the differences in the model and what had changed in the intervening I think it was 20 years between the, the samplings. And it's been 10 years and now. And it's been 10 years <laughs> since then. So, you, don't, you know, it's only another 10 years we have the 10 same years more, we got to do it all again. Yeah. And I think that by default, there kind of has to be a lot of this going mm -hmm. on, especially for the widely used models. Yeah, definitely. The, the really commonly used, um, whether they're uh, location specific or the indicator, uh, not the indicator, the uh, environmental gradient that you're trying to uh, reconstruct. Uh, I think that that is something we need to, to definitely think about systematically. As the climate warms, like pristine conditions just no longer exist because at this point everywhere is impacted. For sure. We were talking about that. Like, why would you use a model that's based on fundamentally different environmental variables? Because they're geographically distinct. Uh, but now they might be the same geographically, but environmentally we're in a different place. Uh, so w why would we think that those models are still going to be perfectly appropriate? If they move outside of the analog of, we don't really reconstruct temperature per se, but you know, the, the gradients and there are always other drivers is the other thing. Temperature may not have been a primary driver or stratification or any of those things when that model was created, but now it is the main control on the distribution of species. So it's giving you incorrect infer or maybe giving you incorrect inferences of the, the variable that you're interested in. I just look at the UK recently. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. So that means basically this is going to be continued work for us paleolimnologists out there uh, as we go back and think about some of these old ones. And I think a final note before we wrap this up is where do meta-analyses fit into all this? Well, I mean, yeah, we're not really talking about meta-analyses per se. Like We've been talking about what becomes a single publication, even if it's a very big one. Um, so, so that might be a discussion more broadly for another day about meta-analyses in paleolimnology. But I think um, th there's a huge value to combining data and doing more with those. The, the question just becomes, can you do that 
to the point where there's too much and you're really not saying anything. And, and so some of those initial uh, pitfalls uh, certainly do apply. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, no, there's definitely, definitely lots of things to think about in this general sphere of model building and paleolimnology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are so many, well, I don't know that every paleolimnologist is becoming a, a better data scientist on top of that. But as uh, more people are exposed to data science, uh, different types of analyses, we've talked about the incorporation of um, community statistics into paleo broadly. I think a lot of people are, are just a little bit more uh, numerical in their uh, workflow so the ability to use that to to do different things is is quite strong. Um, everyone kind of knows that statsy person that, that they could turn well, to. Well, to a point, and then they do know those statsy people. And I think it's pretty interesting of thinking of paleo as a gateway drug to statistics for biology. <laughs> We've seen that for some people, for sure. Yeah, where you, you kind of like got into biology to avoid heart, you know, the harder math uh, topics. And then through paleo, got introduced to them and dived headfirst into it. And there's definitely a push-pull uh, between are you going to be a taxonomy specializing paleolimnologist or a statistical specializing paleolimnologist? That's right. And, and I'm sure there are people who can can walk the line and do both. Uh, good job for them. And I just muddled along being mediocre. I like to be a field work sediment core taking paleolimnologist. <laughs> That sounds like a good place to wrap it yep, up. I Just think so. Passing along our bona fides there. That's it. Yep. Um, and so, uh, once again, thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the paleolimnology podcast. If you have a question or a comment or a suggestion for a future show, uh, please send us a note. Our email address is coreideaspodcast at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter where the handle is at coreideaspaleo, and there's only one A in paleo. We read everything that you send us. There's not much of it, so it's quite easy, uh, even though it might take us a little while sometimes. And an archive of our past episodes and some of the show notes is maintained on our website at coreideas.hsiorski.ca. Uh, the link is listed on our Twitter bio. And if you're so inclined, you can give us a rating or subscribe on Apple, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get your favorite podcast. Those five-star ratings and comments are great. But to be honest, we don't care all that much. Since there aren't that many of them, we just do this for fun. And that's it for today. Uh, but we'll be back soon to explore... Well, no, we won't be exploring another conceptual rabbit hole because that, that was the last one in the arc. We're going to be kicking off a new arc soon and maybe just have a, another celebratory episode coming up in the near future. But in the meantime, uh, we'll continue sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy. <laughs>